Hey, welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Check us out on the web at missiodaychicago.com. Everybody, how's it going? How you doing? Like butter coming in a little hot today. Just went to a, a justice conference this week, and it was intense. Woo! Uh, what I'm talking about today, though, is the rhythm of reconciliation, ways that our interpersonal relationships mirror sometimes what's going on in the world and how we can be a people who actually pursue that, how we go towards the people who have become our enemies, because apparently God doesn't have any enemies. He doesn't have any people that he sees as completely unredeemable. His plan for redemption even extends to those that we hate. Oh, man. For those of you who hate mushrooms, he even has a redemption plan for mushrooms. (laughs) I love mushrooms. I mean, they're kind of a neutral vegetable, but you know what I'm saying. Um, And so we're going to start by um, talking about the story of Mephibosheth. But it starts, of course, with David. But I'm going to pray first. Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you that you are always awake, that you are always ready to heal, that you are always ready to put people back together, that you are always doing this redemptive work even throughout history. God, teach us how to partner with you in the midst of it. Teach us how to be those whose hands are open and whose hearts are open to your spirit and to your presence, that we would be fully rooted in every moment and ready to see you transform hearts and relationships, no matter how deep the wound may be, God. I thank you for this day today and ask that you would speak through me um, and let the words that I say fall on willing, tender hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So the story of David, as we know pretty well, is he was a man after God's own heart. He got anointed as king while there was another king who was the first king of Israel. His name is Saul. And um, Saul was constantly very afraid and very kind of unsure of his relationship with God. In those days, each king had a prophet and they had a seer. And they didn't exactly feel like they talked directly to God but they had a prophet and a seer who would talk to God on their behalf and then give them instructions. So David had Gad and he had Nathan was another one of his prophets. Um, But David had developed an intimate relationship with God in the wilderness. You know, he's playing his harp, he's a shepherd, and he's taking care of the sheep, and he's beating up lions and bears, and he's just this rough guy who was also very tender, one of the first to begin to use music to worship God. There was a time when music wasn't necessarily seen as, as, uh, as positive, you know what I'm saying? Um, but as he's worshiping God, then he becomes anointed. He was the least one in his family who people thought would become a king. We know he becomes a king. He slays Goliath. Saul starts to see these uh, ruminations and rumblings of people loving him more than they love Saul. They would make songs about how many people that David has killed. 
um, in comparison to Saul. And Saul became very jealous of David and began to try to kill him. While this is going on, David had a relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. And it says that he loved him with this ridiculous love, and some translations say he loved him more than he loved a woman. That they were just very intimate partners walking through life, um, and I believe Jonathan taught David a lot about what it was like to be a part of a royal family. David is anointed by Samuel, king, 17 years before he ever ascends to the throne at Jerusalem. He goes through a whole series of running from Saul, and this time Saul is kind of killing him. It's crazy. You think about this. Saul is trying to kill the root of Jesse. He's trying to kill David. And then we find in the New Testament another Saul who is trying to kill Christians who are from the root of David. Sort of the same story playing out and marrying each other. All this time, Jonathan is still great friends with David. Finally, Jonathan and Saul are killed in a battle. At this time, David tears his clothes in despair and mourns and weeps for them. And I wonder how it was that when Saul is attempting to kill David, that David could still honor him. Numerous times he had opportunities to kill Saul, and he did not. One particular time where him and his armor bearer sneak into the camp, and it says God put Saul to sleep. He's standing over Saul, who's sleeping, a man who's killed a lot of people and could easily kill him. And his buddy is like, this is your moment. Go ahead and do it. He's trying to kill you anyway. Go ahead and kill him, man. This is your moment. And David says, know that I would lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. The reality of the matter, the anointing had left Saul and now rested on David. But he knew that if he took the kingdom that God had given him by treachery, and that's the way that he would rule by the same kind of treachery. So in an unrelated battle, not one with David, Jonathan and Saul are both killed. And this is where we pick up the story of Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan. And so this is at 2 Samuel 4 and 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth, as a child, he, you know, the nurse finds out that, you know, their whole family finds out that Saul and Jonathan have just been slain on this battlefield. She's running. She falls and um, drops Mephibosheth, he becomes lame in both of his feet. And shortly after Jonathan and Saul are killed, all of the people around David begin to become zealous about completely wiping Saul's family line off the face of the earth. So they are murdering, beheading his sons, and, um, and David is treating the people who murders Saul's sons as murderers themselves and has them killed because he is still, even in death, attempting to honor the line of Saul 
and Jonathan, which is crazy, that he still has this measure of wanting to honor them. And then we see a little bit later in 2 Samuel 9 that he is, um, I don't have it up there, but I'm going to just read the beginning of 2 Samuel 9. And all of a sudden, uh, David says in um, 2 Samuel 9 and 1, is there still anyone who is left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not someone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel and Lodabar. Then the king sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated him. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here is your servant. So I'll just read all of it. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you the kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and it will restore you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant? You should look upon such a dead dog as I. And the king called the Ziba Saul's servant and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that's belonged to Saul and all to his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. This is David's response to the lion of Saul attempting to kill him. And this process begins with this reconciliation. So what is reconciliation? I have a couple of definitions up here. It's the restoration of friendly relations. It's the action of making one viewer belief compatible with another, and the action of making financial accounts consistent in harmonization. It's much easier to say the word than it is to actually walk it out in life. If anybody has ever been offended, if anybody has have a, had a moment where someone has become an enemy in your eyes, the story of reconciliation can seem impossible, not just for us, but also in the society we live in. You think about all these conflicts that have been going on for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. You, you can think of Ireland and the kind of conflict that they've had between Protestants and Catholics for years. How is that ever going to have a solution? You think of the Hatfields and the McCoys, or you think of Israel and Palestine. Maybe if Abraham had not decided to have a child, Ishmael, with the slave Hagar, then we wouldn't have this Muslim, Christian, and Jewish enmity. But I'm sure man would have found someone to hate anyway. Apparently, it's a part of our nature. 
when you eat from the tree of the garden of, you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think that makes you the good one and very aware of who's evil. But yet and still, David was a man after God's own heart. And I think that gives me a lot of hope, being that a murderer was a man after God's own heart. Someone who was a worshiper, God can still count him as his, as his buddy. I was talking to somebody earlier and said, you know, I'm pretty op optimistic. And they're like, no, you are? <laughs> pretty optimistic. And I had that optimism challenge when uh, I lost my sister. And I remember the moment that it happened. I was telling a story about um, my sister-in-law came into the kitchen and told us that my sister had just passed away. She had been in a car accident early that morning. And I remember us just like staying in this kitchen and wailing. We just wailed and cried and wailed and cried, not just for her, but because of her children who are now orphaned. And that was a process of me having my optimism shaken to the core, believing that everything was awesome, it was just going to work out, and we just all needed to be reconciled. Why can't we just be reconciled? Just forgive everybody, you know what I'm saying? Anybody has friends like that? <laughs> Super optimistic, me, yeah. <laughs> Super optimistic, we just need to forgive. But I had that challenge when I had to learn to lament. I had to learn to have this sorrowful cry of pain that didn't seem to be taken away. So many times as these offenses grow in our lives or as these offenses grow around us geographically, it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly where it happened. The more time goes on. The longer we let these relationships fester, the longer we let them work out even in the world, it's hard to figure out exactly what happened. David and Saul probably didn't realize exactly at what point they became enemies. It's just some jealousy developed, and then he tries to throw a spear at him, and then it's on and popping in. They're, they're enemies now. The longer I wait to address an offense or to reconcile it, the harder it's going to be to see how it even happened anyway. That's what happens with that origin of offense. And this is where the omniness of God becomes a problem. Because he's got the whole world in his hands. That means he's going to work everything out. I don't believe God, though, will work out problems that man has made without man's help. I don't think he... He's like, that's not my department. <laughs> you want to go to the next slide? And I think our enemies are only children of God that are disguised by an offense. That they're disguised by something that they've done to us. 
But God is always redeeming people. I got to hear at this conference about a man who had been exonerated, and he was on death row in Ohio for 14 years. 14 years on death row, and they came to kill him six times. So six times he had his last meal. Six times the death squad comes to his door. And in Ohio, it's really interesting because they still separate prisoners by race. In 2019, still separate prisoners by race. And at this time, he was on death row in the 90s. No one had been executed in the state of Ohio since 1968. And apparently, somebody decided to volunteer to be executed in 1999. And since that time, they've executed 56 people. This guy is there 14 years fighting for his life, and, they're come, and he, just look, he just wears this garment of, of pain and of shame and of all these things that he's had to walk through. Somehow, this narrative has come into our country, has come into our psyche that there are people that are expendable, that there are people that just get them out of here. You know what I'm saying? It's like, where do they go? They're going somewhere where God is still interested in redeeming them. And that's important to remember in interpersonal relationships as well. No matter who we see as our enemy, God has still got a plan of redemption for them. No matter what they've done, no matter what they've been, he's still like, oh, what are, what are they doing now? Maybe today is going to be the day. We are so aware of our goodness and so aware of other people's evil. How aware are we of his plan for redemption? So this offense is hard to pinpoint. And then we have fervor and zeal who begins to be driven by those who are not directly involved. So in David's case, it was all these mighty people who were around him who were zealous. Don't even know exactly where the offense happened, but they're going to finish it. They're going to be those who go directly after it. In Psalm 69, 8 and 9, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children because zeal for your house is eating me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is the verse that the disciples quoted when they saw Jesus getting busy in the temple. Flipping stuff over, and, you know. It's like, I knew God could get angry. He actually does have a lot of emotions. He's flipping tables over, and it says that the zeal for his house is eating me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you has fallen on me. It's when in our fervence to align ourselves, we become, we can take on other people's offense. Year after year, generation after generation, Oh, we just, we hate that uncle. Why do we hate him? I don't know, we just do. We don't like, we don't like them. We don't go to that side. Why don't we? We just, we just don't. Don't ask questions about it. And this goes on for years and years and years, and the complexity of reconciliation becomes difficult to untangle. Listen to a conversation about race in this country and how complex it is. 
it just gets crazy. There's something I, I was thinking about, the way groups relate in this country. And I had this thought of um, something called American group theory. And I believe it's particular to America. It may not be. It's just the way that you know, groups kind of relate. You have all these people who gather around a common idea or a common value. And they become united around this idea or value. But around each group is this prowling thing that's called the truth. But I believe it's like God. God is always attempting to reveal the truth of who we really are. But in groups, we learn to be afraid of the truth because it will make us vulnerable. And so we see this happening in the world around us. Every time someone is exposed for who they truly are, we say, get them out of the group, expel them, whatever it may be. The Me Too movement, people fall in all of our groups. We just, we have some behavior that's off bounds. But apparently God has no behavior that's off bounds. It doesn't mean that I sin more, but it means that I understand he is always redeeming by his love. So we're going to take a moment. I just want you to close your eyes. I want you to think about someone that, or something, or some situation, or that you have expelled. That you have someone that you can't even pray for. And I want you to just take a moment to let God show you what he thinks about that person or that situation. What redemption looks like for him. What reconciliation looks like for him. There's so many broken situations. How can we possibly untangle any of or all of them? But David reconciling with a dead man's line through his lame son gives me a lot of hope. One who even considered himself a dead dog. Like, man, God, you are really interested, more interested in redemption than we are. This is what I imagine it looks like over time. That God has this redemptive work that's going in both directions. And because of it, 
it makes us think we have all the time in the world because God is redeeming it. He's working it out anyway. This is when his sovereignty can become a scapegoat. This is where his omniness is a problem. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnificent, always creating, making a way for us to come together and to be reunited and redeemed and reconciled because he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The last one, omnificent, I'm like, man, I've never heard that word before. It is his creative power. The rest I'm pretty familiar with. But that he's always creating a way for us to relate better and better. One time when I was a young chap, I fell out of a tree. I was trying to touch a power line. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to touch a power line. I fall out of the tree, boom, 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 boom. Hit the ground, and I just stand there a while. And it's like some dudes working on a fence close to us, and they're just <coughs> laughing at me. Ah! <laughs> So I get up, I go in the house and tell my mom that I fell out of a tree and I went back outside and played. <laughs> a little while later, kind of what happens in California is where I grew up, is the wind will knock down power lines and start fires. So what they've tried to do this last week in California is have these blackouts so there's no electricity surging through these lines that can be knocked over and then start fires. One day in our house, we're woken up by um, the fire department, and me and all six of my other siblings go stand outside, and we see that our, like, ivy hedges and bushes are all on fire. And we're sitting there like, whoa, this is crazy. I mean, it was like our house, our driveway, and then the hedges and the bushes, and they had to cut the power and then spray to put them out, spray water to put them out. And I always remember that night, you know, probably because we were up in the middle of the night, but also because we did not go in our backyard for weeks. We were afraid to, like, even go play anymore because that had happened. Now, this week, as I'm preparing this message, God brings both of those stories to mind, and I'm like, what do they have to do with reconciliation? What do they have to do with this message, with the way that it is treated? Um... And I think they have a, uh, they show what we do when we make mistakes, and they show the way we treat situations that are out of our control. So if it's something that's obviously my fault, I want to forget about it. I want to just, like, be done with it. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I messed up. Just forgive me. You know what I'm saying? Let's get on with it and move. But if it's something that's happened outside of my sight, someone who has offended me for whatever reason, then what is my natural position? It's to stay as far away from it as I can. They're not opposite. They're just very different reactions to a situation in a place that we love, which is our backyard. That I could have something happen and I saw it was a mistake I was making. God was probably saving me by falling. 
our natural reaction to some traumatic situations are to stay as far away from it as we can, which usually means people, places, ethnic groups, stay as far away from them as we can. But that's very often where God is trying to invite you into because he's omniscient and he knows that redemption works no matter where you are. One of the problems with reading the gospel as an American is because I always see myself as Jesus standing over the broken person, ministering to them, helping them, colonial mindset. I am the dominant one. I am the smart one. I'm, I'm with God. We are powerful. We're helping this person up. But I have to see myself as blind Bartimaeus too. I have to see myself as the woman with the issue of blood too. It has to be this rhythm of me understanding I need, I am in need. I am in need and I have something to give, but I'm in need, but I have something to give. This is how we transform from teacher to student, to teacher to student, in whatever situation we're in. But God is not going to untangle our man-made problems solo dolo. Not even one person he is willing to throw away. Not even one. Not even one life that he doesn't mourn for. Not even one that he doesn't say, they had it coming. That he's always looking to redeem. And in Israel, the scapegoat was a animal that they laid all their iniquities upon and sent out into the wilderness to remove the stain of sin from the house of Israel. No, although God is sovereign, his sovereignty is waiting to work with us. Waiting to make that call you don't want to make. Waiting to untangle what the heck is going on in Ireland. A whole bunch of stubborn people, that's what's going on in Ireland. <laughs> Have you ever met any Irish people? Woo! <laughs> years and years of like, it's going to be my way or it's going to be the highway. But in the midst of it, God is still doing wonderful things. Worship team, you want to come on up? Bless you. Can we be urgent in our pursuit of redemption? Can we be urgent in our pursuit of pinpointing 
the offense. In Genesis 11 and 6, there is what I see, the picture of reconciliation. And it's the Tower of Babel. They're trying to build a tower to the sky, which is probably pretty stupid, but they were trying it anyway. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us, sounds like more than one person, come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Situations in this country and situations between other people have never been on good terms, really, in a lot of ways. But I think of a loving father who says, if they're together, it's nothing that's going to be withheld from them. They're going to get the whole cookie jar if they only decide to come together. If they only decide that enmity between man is not something that I created. So I said earlier about how I began this process of thinking about what reconciliation looks like. And I just thought everybody should just forgive because that's a good thing. And as an optimist, we should be able to do that immediately. But then a process emerges. And it starts with lament. This sorrowful cry of the state of relationships. Then comes a recognition that something is wrong and only God can heal it. And then repentance as we turn away from the way things were and then forgiveness, which is removing the enmity that we have for each other and believing that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or think. You guys want to stand up? Just want to go to the last slide. It's kind of hard to see. It was a picture I took from the airplane at night, and it's um, the lake and all the lights on the lake as we were flying in. And I was just looking out over the city and thinking about how many stories of redemption that God is doing. God is so freaking dramatic. He's, like, so dramatic. He, like... You know what I'm saying? Waits 20 years to work stuff out and then like gets to sit back and watch all these like different things be set up and then all, you know, fall at the same moment. So you're in the elevator with this long lost friend like he's hella dramatic, man. I love it. <laughs> and it just made me think about all the things that he's doing and reconciling currently as much as we have this understanding that the world is getting worse. He is committed to redemption. He is committed to turning Saul's into Paul's. He's committed to
to seeing people who were trying to kill someone else have their family lying restored and brought to the king's table. So in a bit, we're going to have a time to respond. You can come to receive prayer here or, or and receive communion because all this story is held together by the body of Jesus. Our Redeemer, our King, our strength, who was broken upon the cross.